Last time we spoke about the grueling fall of the villages of Buna and Gona during the Buna-Gona Offensive. The Americans, Australians, and Japanese had been at it for weeks in the Battle of Attrition for the Buna-Gona area. A battle General Douglas MacArthur was too impatient to draw out. Because of the drive to speed up the seizing of the territory, every day became a groundhog day of morning bombardments followed up by failed ground assaults. While it was disheartening to fall upon the concealed Japanese bunkers each day, little by little the Allies were whittling down the Japanese defenders, whose backs were to the sea without any hope of escape. With the villages of Buna and Gona captured, the end was drawing near for the Japanese, many of whom were trying desperately to escape via the ocean or by running into the jungles. And today we are going to continue this brutal story and a new offensive on Starvation Island. This episode is the Mount Austin Offensive. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I am now releasing a seven-part series on China's warlord era. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The Japanese victory at the Battle of Tassafaranga breathed back some life into the IGN. At least now they could continue to operate their supply runs at night. But the Americans had also successfully prevented the major supply run during the Battle of Tassafaranga, greatly hindering the Japanese forces already on Guadalcanal. Starvation Island was certainly living up to its name. The food situation was critical for the Japanese. This led to Tanaka's drum transport experiment, which failed to deliver supplies on the night of November the 30th, to the despair of the 17th Army. To follow this up, the IGN sent destroyers Arashi, Nowaki, and Yugure alongside the reinforcement unit, a total of 10 vessels, to try a second attempt at the drum method on December the 3rd. A coast watcher sounded the alarm and the Cactus Air Force met Tanaka with 8 Dauntless, 7 Avengers, and some Wildcat escorts around 160 miles from their destination. A dozen peats were tossed over to try and protect them, costing five of their number in exchange for just a single wildcat. Despite taking their time and pressing their runs at what Tanaka called very close range, the Dauntless and Avengers only managed to inflict slight damage to the Makinami, losing a Dauntless and Avenger in the process. Makinami and her sister dumped 1,500 drums at Tassafaranga, and hightailed it the hell out of there. The dumping operation saw 310 drums sink to the bottom of Iron Bottom Sound, leading the IGN to refine the technique for future operations. Now they would limit 100 drums per line, and the destroyers would drift as close as possible to the shore to improve success rates. Because of the aerial attacks, the IGN also decided a larger screen was necessary, thus the Tanikaze, Yurikaze, and Turizuki were given to Tanaka. Valuable destroyers being sent to perform supply runs instead of offensive operations they were designed for. 
Like I have said in previous episodes, each time the Japanese use a destroyer or even a submarine to transport men or materials, this is basically like a man eating his own limbs to survive. In the long run, it will prove fatal. On December the 7th, the reinforcement unit, now 12 vessels strong, with three screening vessels, made a third drum venture. Coast Watchers yet again sounded the alarm, prompting 13 Dauntless led by Major Joseph Saylor to intercept the force at 6.40pm. One near miss on the Nowaki killed 17 men and flooded her boiler and engine rooms, cutting off her power. Nowaki would return to Shortland, towed by the Naganami. Eight Peets were escorting the force, and one was downed at the cost of a single wildcat. The other eight destroyers pressed on, and they were met by eight PT boats near Savo Island. The PT boats were hiding at night, trying to ambush the destroyers, and would fire a dozen or so torpedoes. The PT-59 and Kuroshio would exchange machine gun fire at a range of just 100 yards, causing casualties for both sides. In the end, the Japanese force abandoned its run because of the PT menace, a considerable feat that represented probably the greatest success of American PT boats during the entire war. The following day, the Imperial Navy delegation announced intentions to stop all destroyer transportation runs effective immediately. General Imamura was shocked and made enormous protests until the Navy consented to two more runs, one to Guadalcanal and another to Muna. It took the 8th Area Army a formal appeal to Tokyo, stating, Without resupply runs by destroyers, the men on Guadalcanal and at Buna would have to be sacrificed. On the same day, the Americans managed to transport the 132nd Infantry Regiment at Lunga, Vandegrift then formally turned command of the forces over to Major General Alexander Patch of the United States Army. Vandegrift chose to write a letter paying tribute to the soldiers, sailors, and airmen who had fought tirelessly and died side by side with his marines on Guadalcanal. He would have also mentioned the Coast Watchers in the formal letter, but it was necessary to keep them a secret from the enemy, so he guarded that secret by writing this. Our small band of devoted allies who have contributed so vastly in proportion to their numbers. The 5th Marines disembarked in their green dungarees or dirty khakis, most in tatters. Some men even sported Japanese footgear. The men were dirty, quite lean, as most had lost an average of 20 pounds, and they were hoisted by sailors onto the boats to get them out of Starvation Island. Many marines visited the cemetery on the island, which contained 650 dead before they left. 1,278 marines won the Purple Heart medals for wounds, and over 8,580 would receive no decoration for the diseases they suffered while on the island. After the 5th marines, the rest of the division would disembark in two echelons in December and January. Of the original landing force, there remained only the luckless 2nd marines. The New York Times wrote of the disembarkments, stating this. When news comes that the Marines are leaving Guadalcanal for a well-earned rest, we know that this is not because they asked to be relieved of their assignment. This prompted a good laugh from the 1st Marine Division who read it, wanting nothing more than to get the hell off Starvation Island. Although they got off the island, Guadalcanal literally became an embroidered part of their character henceforth. As Vandegrift flew from Guadalcanal to Brisbane, alongside him with Lieutenant Colonel Merrill Twinning, his operations officer, Twinning spent the time designing a shoulder patch for the entire division. 
It was a blue diamond with five stars of the Southern Cross as a background, and in the center of the patch was red number one, with a single word in the center reading Guadalcanal. During the first week of December, the Japanese submarines enjoyed more success than their destroyer counterparts, trying to transport provisions to Guadalcanal. The I-boats managed to deliver 20 or so tons over three nights without incidents by December the 8th. However, U.S. radio intelligence began to figure out their scheduled runs, and in the early hours of December the 9th, PT-44 and PT-59 waited to ambush them off Kamimbo. The I-3 surfaced right between the two PT boats and PT-59 torpedoed the I-3, inviscerating it. This prompted the IGN to suspend further submarine transport runs. On December the 11th, 11 destroyers with 5 escorts made a run with Tanaka yet again at the helm with his flagship being the Terazuki. American radio intelligence yet again proved their effectiveness, pinpointing the precise composition, timing, and destination of Tanaka's reinforcement unit. 14 Dauntless, led by Major Robert Shaw, intercepted Tanaka in extreme range and with feeble light at 6.55pm. Tanaka had no fighter escort, but managed to survive the ordeal unscathed and even down to Dauntless. Another trap lay waiting in the form of five PT boats patrolling off Kamimbo. Six destroyers carrying 1,200 drums dumped them off near Cape Esperance and began their withdrawal around 1.15am. From the shadows of Savo Island, PT boats 37, 40, and 48 stalked their dumping operation and fired torpedoes upon them. One torpedo hit the Terazuki on her port side, ripping her propeller shaft and rudder apart and sending burning oil out of her. Tanaka was rendered wounded and unconscious as the staff transferred him to the Nagami at 1.33am. The explosion attracted PT-44 and 14 near Kimimbo, who closed in on the burning Terazuki. Lieutenant Frank Friedland of PT-44 was approaching the burning ship when Kawakaze and Suzukaze caught sight of his ship and began firing upon him. PT-44's engines were taken out quickly, and Freeland was forced to order the ship to abandon as the second hit smashed right into him. Two out of the eleven men of the crew survived, and one of them, Lieutenant Charles Melhorn, recalled this. I dove deep and was still underwater when the Savo struck. The concussion jarred me badly, but I kept swimming underwater. There was a tremendous explosion, paralyzing me from the waist down. The water around me went red. The life jacket took control and pulled me to the surface. I came up in a sea of fire, the flaming embers of the boat cascading all about me. I tried to get free of the life jacket, but I couldn't, so I started swimming feebly. I thought the game was up, but the water, which had shot sky high in the explosion, rained down and put out the fires around me. From the first hit to this point took less than 15 seconds. The Terazuki's wounds proved fatal. At 3.15, her crew stopped trying to save her. 154 of them found themselves refugees at Kamimbo, as the rest of the reinforcement unit dropped anchor and left. Only 220 of the 1,200 drums actually made it to their intended recipients. The Tokyo Express made no further runs to Guadalcanal in 1942. Meanwhile, the 11th Air Fleet was replenishing their air power for a new offensive by disposing of 100 aircraft, 41 fighters, 36 Bettys, and 23 Vals. Alongside repair work for current air forces in the region, the Imperial HQ expected the number of zeros and Bettys to equal around 168 and 100 respectfully by the end of December. 
To these would be another 110 aircraft added from the IJA 6th Air Division, which began to arrive on December the 18th. While the Japanese were tossing a massive amount of aircraft into the fray, what they were beginning to lack was good pilots. The 11th Air Fleet was becoming acutely aware of the decline in skill of the replacement pilots. The Guadalcanal campaign illustrates that aerial combat power cannot be simply measured in the number of said aircraft. Pilot's skill was of grave importance. Maintenance resources and airfield locations and capacity likewise were important. This led the Japanese to look to further developing and constructing more airfields at Rabaul, Bun, and Shortland to hammer Guadalcanal even harder. The target date to complete such works was mid-December. One of the most important new facilities was to be Munda, on the island of New Georgia, just 170 miles away from Guadalcanal. The Hakaze landed the 6th Sasebo SNLF to clear the area before two battalion-sized construction units were landed in late November. The crews managed to create a rough strip, 1,094 by 44 yards long by December the 14th. By December the 19th, the strip had anti-aircraft batteries, another infantry battalion for guard, and part of the 252nd Air Group ready to operate. The Munda operation would be short-lived, however, as the Cactus Air Force made a number of sorties against it, causing havoc. Then on Christmas Day, a submarine, the Sea Dragon, torpedoed the Tenkai Maru, which was carrying construction troops for a new airbase on Kolombangara. Her escort, the Yuzuki, collided with a transport during the chaos, leading to a rescue operation involving four other destroyers, which were attacked by the Cactus Air Force, causing more and more casualties. The Japanese found themselves continuously sending aircraft to Munda to replace damaged ones the Cactus Air Force were battering, and by December the 27th, Admiral Kuzaka recognized Munda had become more of a liability than an asset. All of the chaos was stopping any efforts at making provision runs for the 17th Army stuck on Guadalcanal. By December the 20th, desperate attempts were made to drop provisions using Bettys at night, and there is no known record of any of these supply runs actually working. With the mounting failures, by the 27th, the submarine transport system was reactivated. The IJN's inability to properly deliver provisions in December to the 17th Army was simply calamitous. Rations for the 38th Division fell to a sixth for each man in the front lines and a tenth for the others. Even with that extreme amount of rationing, they ran out of all the food that had landed in December by the 17th. Of the 6,000 or so men, roughly 30% retained enough strength to be able to fetch rations for their comrades, and 250 men possessed reasonable enough strength for full combat capacity. The 2nd Division's rations likewise were abysmal. Of the 1,000 men in the 4th and 16th Infantry Regiments, over two-thirds were sick, injured, or detailed in support functions, leaving only 100 to 200 men on the front lines. Artillery and aerial bombardments were taking 4 to 10 men's lives per day, and on a particularly bad day, it could go up to 20. On December the 7th, the 8th Area Army notified Tokyo that about 50 men were dying every day on Guadalcanal. The rate went up exponentially by mid-December, with the Sendai Division alone reporting 40 deaths every 24 hours. On December the 18th, Major Nishiyama of the 228th Infantry wrote this in his diary. I just received orders to feed the men to the end of the month on the food we have now. This is beyond outrageous. Another officer's diary termed it like this. 
This is the very bottom of the human condition. The entire army was skeletal men, with ulcerous skin draped over filthy sopping clothes. Tons of men were feverish, and there was no medicine. Army HQ reported they ate tree shoots, coconuts, and grass growing in the rivers. In his diary, 2nd Lieutenant Yasuo Ko, the color bearer of the 124th Infantry, recorded a formula that he calibrated for life expectancy of his comrades. Those who can stand up, 30 days. Those who can sit up, 3 weeks. Those who cannot sit up, 1 week. Those who can urinate lying down, 3 days. Those who have stopped speaking, 2 days. Those who have stopped blinking, tomorrow. After watching the rapid deterioration of their forces, the Japanese commanders of the 17th Army began to fear a catastrophe would unfold if their opponents massed any firepower, or tanks for that matter, to make a thrust up the coast. Therefore, the 17th Army planned to lure the American attention further inland by feinting offensive maneuvers. On November the 30th, an extremely weak company mounted an attack at dusk against the southern rim of the American line on the eastern bank of the Matanikau. They expended precious motor and artillery ammunition to pull off the feint, a necessary loss to fake seriousness. Meanwhile, Lieutenant General Seno ordered his 38th Engineer Battalion to organize small raiding parties into the American perimeter from Mount Austin. On December the 12th, a five-man team managed to destroy a P-39 and a fuel truck at the fighter strip number two. These little actions drew the intended American attention further inland. As of December the 9th, General Patch held command of the forces, and his belief was that expelling of the Japanese from the island would have to await the cycle of replacement for the 1st Marine Division, and some more reinforcements that would come in the new year. Alongside General Harmon, the two men sought to accomplish some sort of objective in the meantime, and the trouble coming from Mount Austin gave them just that. Mount Austin gave the Japanese an excellent observation of all the activities going on in the American perimeter from troop movements to arrivals and departures via aircraft or shipping. Taking Mount Austin would deny the Japanese this vital intel and provide the concealment necessary to perform flanking maneuvers against them in the future. Mount Austin was a jumble of abrupt rocky ridges gripped by a lot of jungle. Its 1,514-foot summit rises around 6 miles southwest of Henderson Field, and it marks the end of a ridge that juts up from the foothills just 2 miles south of the shore. West from the summit was Hill 27, a small 920-foot rocky plateau. Around 750 yards north of it was Hill 31, which offered a great observational point overlooking Lunga. Then from the east to the west were Hills 30 and 42, and then there was Hill 43 and 44, which held a grassy area that from the air looked like a seahorse, thus it was nicknamed the Seahorse. Likewise, Hills 50 and 57 looked like a galloping horse from above, Thus it earned the nickname, the Galloping Horse. An American patrol from the 132nd Infantry Regiment on December the 14th encountered a small group of Japanese with four machine guns and two motors, a rather heavy amount for such a small force. From this encounter and the December 12th raid, the American Army intelligence officers deduced a buildup of Japanese strength in the South. Americans began to stir in front of Major General Ito's 38th Infantry Group, prompting General Sano to give his small horde of reserve food to Ito's group. On December the 16th, Patch ordered the 132nd Infantry to seize Mount Austin at once. 
Colonel Leroy Nelson's 132nd Infantry debarked on December the 8th for the offensive, and Nelson placed Lieutenant Colonel William Wright as the leader of the 3rd Battalion who would be its spearhead. 105mm howitzers of the 246th Field Artillery Battalion and 7mm pack howitzers of the 2nd Battalion, 10th Marines, were sent to support the offensive. But the slippery Jeep trail alongside the ridgeline running to Hill 35 was at the very end of their logistics line. After that, it was native barriers who would have to hand carry supplies forward. The native bearers were nicknamed the Cannibal Battalion. December 17th saw an uneventful reconnaissance in force up the northeastern slopes by Companies K and L of 132nd. The following day, Company L marched another 1,000 yards southwest of Hill 35 and entered a jungle slope leading to Mount Austin Summit. At 9.30 a.m., rifle machine gun fire broke out, pinning down Company L. The rest of the battalion soon joined up with Company L by 11.30 a.m., turning a patrol into a full-fledged offensive. Lieutenant Colonel Wright used his artillery support to hit the Japanese positions and ordered the men to set up a defensive perimeter. After artillery and arrow bombardment on December the 19th, Wright went to inspect the defensive lines west of his battalion, and at 9.30 a.m., he was wounded by a machine gun bullet. Wright tried to grenade an enemy position, but had to be pulled out because of his wound. He was replaced by Major Luis Franco of the 1st Battalion. While Major Franco was making his way to the front to take command, a few Japanese riflemen managed to infiltrate past the Ford companies and began harassing the supply parties and engineers coming up the trail. Wright would die of his wounds during the mayhem, and thus the trail was named Wright Road in his honor. As the night settled in, the 1st Battalion found itself dug in on the left flank of the 3rd Battalion due south of Hill 19. The next day, Japanese infiltrators and small patrols kept the men of the 132nd Infantry on their toes, prodding their flanks and rear. From the 20th to the 23rd, American patrols pushed some 1,500 yards south, finding no Japanese nor any decent trails in the jungle. But a 3rd Battalion patrol managed to go west all the way to Hill 31. Nelson soon ordered the 3rd Battalion to follow this up, and they passed Hill 31 the next day, and began an offensive south towards Hill 27. The 1st Battalion followed them forming a screen for their left flank and protected the supply route as the Japanese constantly tried to harass them. By the 24th, as the 3rd Battalion further explored up Hill 31, they ran into Japanese rifle fire and then very well concealed machine gun nests. The men were halted by what proved to be the most strongly fortified Japanese positions they had found yet on Guadalcanal, thereby named by its defenders the Gifu after a prefecture in Honshu. The Gifu sat west of Mount Austin Summit, sequestered between hills 31 and 27. Its main defensive line consisted of around 45 interconnected pillboxes bent in a horseshoe formation with the open end to the west between the two hills. The structures were burrowed deep into the ground and riveted inside and out with dirt. The walls were around two logs thick and the roofs three. The camouflage was artful done using earthwork covering an extra three feet or so. The fortifications were impervious to anything short of a direct hit from a 155mm howitzer. Each one of these pillboxes housed around 1-2 machine guns and 3 riflemen. All the pillboxes were positioned in such a way to provide mutual support fire. Major Takeyoshi Inagaki mustered around 500-600 men from his 2nd Battalion, 228th Infantry, alongside the 2nd Battalion, 124th Infantry to man the Gifu defenses. The first and most difficult problem facing the Americans was trying to find these fortifications. They were extremely well concealed. 
The dense jungle hit both the fortifications and their firing lanes. It was easy to trot through the jungle and come face to face with a pillbox before even seeing it, a fatal mistake made by many Americans. The 132nd Infantry lacked flamethrowers and the Japanese fire prevented men from getting close enough to toss demolition charges. The Gifu did, however, have some vulnerabilities. Its western perimeter was weaker, and there were not enough defenders to take up positions on both the northern and southern perimeters. Thus, they were in danger of being flanked. The Japanese also lacked artillery support, and of course, they were critically low on provisions and ammunition of all kinds. Christmas brought two days of brutal fighting. Rifle and machine gun fire from concealed positions rained down upon the 3rd Battalion, prompting Nelson to order a frontal attack on the 26th. The 1st Battalion covered their left flank, penetrating 1,000 yards south and began to launch patrols to find any weaknesses in the defensive lines. Artillery and aerial bombardment rained hell upon the Gifu, but the 3rd Battalion was making little progress against such heavy machine gun fire. The 1st Battalion then assembled itself too far to the west and instead of hooking into the Japanese flanks, they ended up right in front of the Gifu, in a similar position to the 3rd Battalion. The next day saw further American patrols hunting for weaknesses. Then on the 29th, one patrol found a clear route to Hill 27. That same day, the 2nd Battalion was released, over to Nelson's use, which was fortunate as the 1st and 3rd were being battered. The two battalions had suffered 53 men killed, 129 wounded, and 131 sick leaving 1,541 men still fit for combat. Nelson devised a plan to hit the northern and eastern face of the Gifu using the 3rd and 1st battalions while the 2nd would capture Hill 27 in a wide envelopment. It took Lieutenant Colonel George Ferry's 2nd Battalion longer than expected to reach its assembly point on Hill 11, but by the morning of New Year's Day of 1943, the men were marching southwest to hit Hill 27. The 2nd Battalion reached the southeastern slope of Hill 27 by 4 p.m. without any resistance. On New Year's Day, Colonel Nelson was relieved of command, possibly by his own request. Accounts seemed to differ. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander George replaced him, and he made a rather dramatic entrance. To restore confidence in the men, and to belittle the Japanese, Lieutenant Colonel George showed up in only shorts and a cap, walking erect with a rifle in hand through the length of the lines. Many Japanese tried to fire upon him, but none managed to hit him. George was trying to prove a point about the Japanese lacking decent small arm fire, and well, I guess it worked out. The next day found all three of the battalions caught up in heavy combat. The 3rd Battalion was roughing in some jungle south of Hill 31, losing 4 men dead and 18 wounded, while the 1st Battalion advanced in a column southwest through a ravine between hills 19 and 30. By the end of the day, the 1st Battalion closed in on the eastern face of the Gifu, losing 2 dead and 4 wounded. The 2nd Battalion was beginning to reap the rewards of their long march as they seized the crest of Hill 27 by 9.07 am. The leading companies surprised and killed a crew of a Japanese field gun piece who had been lounging around some shade and by 11.30 the entire battalion had dug in to defend their gain. The 2nd Battalion's dug in position was met by some quantity of artillery fire, motors, grenade launchers and machine gun fire. By the afternoon, the 2nd Battalion tossed six separate infantry attacks repulsing the Japanese. During the night, the Japanese tried to probe three sides of the 2nd Battalion's position, but by the morning the Americans stood firm. Meanwhile, the 1st and 3rd Battalions began to seal up all the gaps between their own lines. 132nd Infantry were all ordered to dig in and hold their positions by January the 4th, 
George's men clamped down, holding the northern, eastern, and southern periphery of the Gifu. Over the course of 22 days on Mount Austin, the 132nd Infantry Regiment had suffered 112 killed and 272 wounded. Countless hundreds more were facing disease, rendering the regiment incapable of further offensive action. It's hard to estimate the Japanese losses, but Lieutenant Koho wrote in his diary at about the same time that everywhere he gazed, corpses lay with the freshly dead, rotting side by side with skeletal remains. On New Year's Day, the last food was distributed to the defenders of the Gifu. Two crackers and one piece of hard candy per man. Things were tough on Starvation Island, but they were not looking any better over on Green Hell. Last time we were on Green Hell, the villages of Boon and Gona were being captured. Fresh troops landed alongside General Yamagata on December the 2nd, and now they were crossing the Amboga River, marching towards Gona Village. Yamagata had 280 men, and he had them dig in around Gona Village. After securing the village, Brigadier Doherty decided to turn west to deal with the fresh force under Yamagata. At this point, the 21st Brigade had lost a total of 409 men, and the 39th, 121. This represented around 41% of Doherty's strength. Thus, the Australians advanced with caution towards Yamagata's position. The Australian patrols crossed the Gona Creek and they skirmished with Yamagata's advancing forces, but they soon realized they were no longer dealing with the remnants of the Owen Stanley Range campaign. Oh no, these were fresh troops. On December the 11th, one patrol was pushed back over the Gona Creek and the Japanese began probing Gona Village, leading to the death of three Japanese officers. The Australians and Japanese unleashed fierce attacks and counterattacks, but the Allies enjoyed the support of artillery and aerial bombardment. Yamagata and his immediate staff elected to withdraw to Napapo, three kilometers up the coast from Gona, as the first echelon of the 21st Brigade was still waiting to be successfully landed. Yamagata resolved to quote, Secure our current position in the Gona area, wait for the arrival of the second echelon of reinforcements, and plan subsequent strategies. By this point, the defenders around Gona Village had been reduced to just 100 men, and they were fighting to the bitter end. By the 16th, the Japanese were completely encircled. 68 AT grenade launchers wrecked havoc upon the Japanese bunkers as the Australians stormed the village, taking out the remaining pockets of resistance, and by the 18th, the village was theirs. Back on December the 8th, the original Echelon, a battalion of the 170th Regiment, with some artillery and machine gun companies, had left Rabaul only to be turned back by nine flying fortresses resulting in three destroyers getting damaged. The next attempt to move these forces went much smoother. 800 troops and the newly appointed commander of the South Seas Force, Major General Kenzaku Oda, replaced the ill-fated General Hori and they arrived to the mouth of the Mambari River. General Oda was delayed several days at the mouth of the Mambari and only got a portion of his troops to the mouth of the Amboga River to join the rest of the forces there. General Oda and the new staff officer, Colonel Kikitaro Oyotsu, joined Yamagata at Danawatu, where he was moved back from Napapo. Both reinforcement echelons who had survived the fight over Gona Village were now transferred to Girwa by barge on December the 26th, and Yamagata would join them three days later. Now over in the Buna area, the last time we spoke, the Urbana force had successfully seized Buna Village by December the 13th, as the Japanese evacuated and made their way along the coast towards Girwa. By December the 17th, newly arrived Stuart tanks were pushing up the coast towards Cape Endeadur. A Dawn motor barrage was used to conceal the sound of the tanks and the Japanese in the bunkers who had been there 
for five weeks under daily bombardment simply sat there numb to it, unaware a significant development was occurring. The Japanese in the outer camp were caught completely by surprise when the smoke from the bombardment subsided and tanks began to appear within just a few meters of their bunkers. The tanks began firing and the bunker defenders frantically fired back with machine guns as men leapt out of the bunkers trying to get on top of the tanks in a suicidal fashion. One tank was lost to Molotov cocktails delivered in this suicidal manner, and another tank was halted with engine failures. But the Japanese positions were quickly overrun. In just an hour, the attack moved briskly up to Cape and Deodor. Bunkers and blockhouses beyond the Cape, which had avoided the early day bombardments, were much more aware of the incoming tanks. The Allied advance met furious resistance, and they were stopped 500 meters past Cape and Deodor. At this point, the Allies took control of the Doropa plantation, and they cleared it of any Japanese. While for weeks the defenders had stood firm, not giving any ground, the 229th Regiment here, they simply broke. Yamamoto ordered a fighting withdrawal back to the former government station where the Buna Garrison HQ now operated. The Allies continued their push towards the airstrips in the eastern sector, and this proved harder than the push along the coast. Two tanks were being put out of action by machine gun fire, and more tanks soon followed. After two hours of bitter fighting, the combination of tanks and infantry gradually overcame 20 steel and concrete blockhouses as the Japanese pulled back towards the northern side of the new strip, where bunkers stood near a wooden bridge over the Sememi Creek. The Japanese suffered severe casualties, but dished out likewise to the Allies. One in three of the Australians participating in this operation were killed or wounded. After taking the Doropa plantation and the new strip, the Allied commanders concluded that these fortifications would not have been taken if not for the tanks. After a single rest day, the tanks and infantry pushed on, overrunning Japanese positions east of the strip point. The terrain past the strip point were marshy, causing 14 tanks to be bogged down. Meanwhile, Yamamoto withdrew his troops across the Sememi Creek and established new positions. Some defenses were made on the island at the mouth of the Sememi Creek and on its western bank. Further upstream, the Japanese blew up a section of a bridge, forcing the causeway to be a swamp. The Americans tried to repair the bridge under a smokescreen, but the Japanese quickly began to bombard them, causing them to look elsewhere to cross the Sememi Creek. It would take a day for the Australian patrol to find a place to cross. The Japanese became aware of the crossing and they pulled back further west to a network of fire trenches with connecting bunkers near the old strip. Meanwhile, Australian engineers now were able to repair the bridge, enough to allow American tanks to cross during the afternoon. The Americans moved up the southern edge of the old strip, while the Australians swung around and skirmished with the Japanese on the northern side. By Christmas Eve, tanks were advancing as the Japanese used anti-tank guns to try and take them down. Two tanks were knocked out, and a third turned over in a shell hole. The remaining tanks were held back. The old strip was attacked for over two days without much success, until the Allies found an adjacent swamp area that concealed their approach, allowing them to break through the rear of the eastern sector's defenses. The Japanese began to make a fighting withdrawal to the Garopa plantation, which was similar to the Doropa one. The Japanese rearguard fought to the bitter end, tossing countless grenades at the American-Australian attackers. Bunzai charges were made, and many Japanese armed with M1 rifles and American helmets were seen. On December the 29th, 20 of Yamamoto's men infiltrated a U.S. company's command post, and they tricked them by saying, Medic! Medic! before tossing grenades and bayonet charging the men. In the scramble, several men were bayoneted in their sleep, while others died in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Fifteen Americans were killed, with another 12 wounded. 
Some of the 229th held strong, perhaps sustained by their beliefs in their own cause. Others, like Lance Corporal Uchiyama, seem to have had their spirits broken. As he wrote nine days before in his final diary entry, We now only wait for the final moments to come. Every day, one or two comrades are killed. I am disgusted with myself, only thinking when my end will come. As a lance corporal, I must encourage the soldiers, saying to the subordinates that war has just begun. Fight to the end. By the 22nd, it seems Uchiyama was resigned to death, and he welcomed it as he wrote this. No thoughts of returning home alive. I want to die like a soldier and go to the Yasukuni Shrine. The defenses from the outer camp and eastern sector pulled back to the coastal strip between the Garopa Point and the mouth of the Sumemi Creek as the Allied tanks moved in in the afternoon of December the 29th. Four tanks advanced quickly, actually far too quickly for their infantry to get to the first line of concealed bunkers. The tanks began to fire upon the first line of the bunkers unaware that they had been abandoned. The Japanese had pulled back to the second line. Upon seeing the tanks were unaccompanied by infantry, the Japanese filtered back to the first line and began to fire upon the tanks, and by dusk, the tanks ran out of ammunition, thus halting the offensive for a day. The Japanese success was short-lived, however. Three days later, both the Americans and Australians grouped up and hit the Garopa Plantation and began clearing the beach down to the Sumimi mouth. This time, tanks were accompanied by infantry, providing proper mop-up operations. The Allied casualties were high but the Japanese were simply doomed. By January the 2nd, the Japanese emplacements on the island at the mouth of the Sumimi Creek had been overrun and tanks had cleared out the other emplacements up to the Garopa Point. Now the Warren Force was poised to connect with the Urbana Force, which had been working its way up to the other end of the Buna defenses. The Urbana Force had to face the Triangle, a well-fortified, jungle-covered tongue of land surrounded by a lot of swamp. Back on December the 19th, an Allied attack up the bridge over the entrance creek was halted by Japanese crossfire. Another attack that afternoon was made under the cover of a smokescreen, but it ended up being halted. For two days, the Americans made repeated charges up the triangle at its only practical approach, the bridge, without any success. During one attempt, the Americans got to a line of bunkers only to find them vacated. As they went near them, they were suddenly met with intense fire causing carnage. Eventually, the Urbana force tried faint assaults on the triangle. They would advance to a short distance, then suddenly launch a motor barrage on the Japanese, who had come out of their bunkers to meet the enemy. Then the Urbana force crossed Entrance Creek above a coconut grove, and formed a beachhead north of the triangle, trying to isolate it. Simultaneously, other US forces were attacking Musita Island in the estuary of Entrance Creek. American engineers managed to repair a bridge on the 22nd, allowing troops to get onto the island and move up the northern bridge where the Japanese began to fire upon them. American artillery was brought onto Masetta Island to fire upon the government station at Buna. From there, the Americans went over a bridge and began to assault the government's garden. On Christmas Day, two American companies crawled through some grass of the government gardens, managing to get to the coconut palm strip where the Japanese began to attack the rear. It took three days for the Urbana force to establish a corridor to save its trapped companies. But once this was achieved, Yasuda realized the triangle was being outflanked, and thus he ordered an evacuation. When the Americans entered the triangle on the 28th, they found empty bunkers, abandoned arms, and ammunition, 
and signs that defenders were near the end of their tether. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at The Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast written and narrated by me. And if after all of that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm now just releasing a seven-part series on China's warlord era. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The Mount Austin Offensive was becoming a bloodbath, one the Japanese sought to direct the focus of the Americans away from their more vulnerable coastal positions. Over in the Bunagona Front, the curtains were slowly closing upon the Japanese, and they were going to fight to the bitter end.